Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Munson Med Talks. I'm Laura Glenn. I'm Christine Nefsi. I'm Joe Santangelo. We hope this podcast brings value to your daily practice and keeps you updated on what's new at Munson Healthcare. Please subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. Thanks and enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Santangelo, Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Munson Healthcare. Welcome to Munson Med Talks. For this episode of the podcast, we're going to play a recording of part of the Provider Forum from Wednesday, August 11th. We had two guests on our Provider Forum, Dr. Nick Torney, who is an infectious disease pharmacist for Munson Healthcare, and Dr. Chris Ledke, who's one of our infectious disease physicians. And we talked about monoclonal antibody therapy updates across our system and nationally. We also spent some time talking about the Delta variant and what that means to us locally, what's been changing in our area, and what changes Dr. Lecky sees on the horizon. It was a really great conversation. We had some audience questions that we took during the forum, and we're really hopeful that you find this to be helpful as we continue to deal with the Delta variant moving across our region. So enjoy listening to Drs. Torney and Ledke, and we hope you find this helpful. Thanks, Dr. Santangelo. So uh, yeah, the monoclonal antibody therapy that uh, has been delivered throughout Munson Healthcare has been for the treatment of COVID-19 in patients that are symptomatic. Uh, There are currently five outpatient sites for that. Um, That would be Traverse City, Cadillac, Brayling, Kalkaska, and and now Charlevoix are all referral centers. And all of that process really has has been unchanged. And again, that's for the the treatment of COVID-19 in patients that are symptomatic uh, and they must receive that, that, uh, that therapy within 10 days. Uh, The recently the um, the state has issued guidance that only a few of the monoclonal antibodies that are currently available should be used because the variants that are circulating may be resistant to some of the monoclonal antibodies that are available. So namely, the bamlanivimab and etacivimab combination, it is recommended to no longer use that combination because of resistance to some of the common variants that are isolating or that are circulating not just in the state but across the country. So the recommendation is to use Regeneron, which is a a combination casirivimab and devimab or citrovimab by itself. Munson Healthcare, um, like many other institutions, is using Regeneron, casirivimab and devimab. And this uh, combination is is effective against all the circulating variants, including the Delta variant. The um, FDA recently came out with a, a new emergency use authorization on July 30th, stating that uh, post-exposure prophylaxis in, um, in individuals uh, that are unvaccinated or are immunocompromised and vaccinated Uh, may be um, considered. And this is based on a phase three study that included uh, 1,500 patients randomized one-to-one to to either receive placebo or subcutaneous Regeneron. So um, this population, as you can imagine, it was, uh, they were all unvaccinated. Uh, That was, that was part of the um, 
exclusion criteria to exclude anyone that was vaccinated. And they contain, it contained really very um, young, healthy population, uh, like you would imagine for an initial phase three study and something like that. So the percentage of immunocompromised patients in that study was low. Um, it did show a difference in the amount of patients uh, that, that developed symptomatic COVID-19 uh, upon receipt of Regeneron versus placebo. So placebo, there were about 7.8% of patients that developed symptomatic COVID-19 infection after uh, 29 days. And the, in the Regeneron group, it was 1.5% uh, of patients. So there was a statistically significant difference in those patients. And again, those um, close contacts that were asymptomatic that were uh, allowed to be enrolled in that study. Uh, we are evaluating uh, this throughout Munson Healthcare, and, and there, there is um, uh, ongoing work that is looking into how we could potentially offer this to our patients, um, whether that is you know on an outpatient basis, long-term care, inpatient. So more to come on that and more communication will be had with that. We just wanted to uh, let you all know that this information is available. The FDA um, EUA is out there. Um, and uh, if there's any uh, further questions about that, you, you can certainly contact me um, on that. And Dr. Santangelo, is there any anything that I missed or um, uh, any further information that you want me to cover there? No, I think you covered everything. The, the only other question I had is, I understand that we've seen a pretty significant uptick in utilization of Regeneron across our system. And I don't know if that's worth commenting on. Yeah, for sure. We have. And, you know, that could be multifactorial, uh, you know, number of cases in our area certainly are increasing, but also the uh, the use is increasing because providers are becoming more aware that this therapy is available um, and our process for identifying patients is getting more fine-tuned as well. So uh, I believe last week, 23 infusions across months in healthcare were given. And so that is definitely um, increasing week to week uh, that we're seeing. Yeah. Great. Thanks a lot, Nick. I really appreciate it. And thanks as always for being willing to come uh, talk to the providers. Um, we know you're one of our best sources of information. So thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. And if you wouldn't mind hanging on, because uh, I think a lot of times we get questions towards the end. And so I might have some questions for you. I don't have any right now, but I might have some questions for you as we go. Um, but I'd like to turn to Dr. Ledke. Um, so uh, thanks again, Dr. Ledke, for joining us. Also a frequent guest of the forum. Um, and there is lots to talk about related to the Delta variant. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Joe. Um, and as always, thank you to the providers for being engaged enough to uh, listen to the forum, and thank you for taking care of the patients in our community. Um, I wanted to focus on the Delta and um, maybe some of the talking points you've heard about in the media and try to clarify some of these things so that you can talk to patients and your family members and, and that. Um, so first of all, uh, Delta is the um, Greek letter that was assigned to this variant. Uh, and I'll just remind you of the variants of concern that we've had uh, have included the Alpha variant, which was the B117, the UK variant that we had a big surge uh, in April uh, here in Michigan. The Beta variant is the South African variant, uh, the B1351. Uh, the Gamma variant is the B1 Brazilian variant. 
Uh, and then again, Delta is B16172, uh, originally from India. Those are variants of concern, which means that they have the capability to produce large surges. Uh, the variants of interest, just so you know, there's a lot more. There's Epsilon, which is from California, B1427. There's Iota from New York, B1526. There's Ada from Nigeria, B1525. And there's Kappa from India, which is another form of Delta, uh, B16171. So the reason I bring that up is because um, I just want to make clear, this is probably not the last variant that we're going to care about. This is probably not the last variant that is going to cause uh, concern and surges and, and you know, big local spread. So just know more to come on those. Uh, it, I guess from a uh, scientific standpoint, the, the reason this occurs is because viruses are replicating extremely quickly. And a lot of that is sloppy. So they uh, reproduce genetic material extremely rapidly. And so oftentimes when there's an error, the product, it produces a non-viable organism and then that doesn't transmit. But every once in a while, maybe once in a billion, it creates something that happens to be more fit than the uh, baseline strain. And, and that can develop a population of uh, viral organisms that because of their increased fitness can develop a new strain that is able to sustain transmission in the community. So that is inevitable and the setting of ongoing transmission, which is occurring worldwide. Um, so just think about that. As I mentioned, Delta was originally um, found in India actually in March um, and has transmitted uh, essentially worldwide at this point. We know that it's more transmissible. It's more contagious based on the epidemiologic data that we've seen uh, so far. But there are ways to quantify that. So there's an epidemiologic term called the r naught, which is uh, indicative of how many secondary cases there is per every primary case. So for example, um, for non-COVID, uh, seasonal flu has an r naught of about 1.3. So 1.3 secondary cases for every primary case of seasonal flu. Measles has an R naught of between 15 and 20 in an unprotected population. So measles is incredibly infectious. Uh, Chickenpox or disseminated VZV uh, has an R naught of around 10. Okay, the initial uh, COVID strain, the wild type, uh, had an R naught of about 2.3 to 2.7. Okay, uh, when we had the alpha outbreak uh, in the spring that had an R naught of around four to five. Deltas they predict is somewhere between five and nine, okay? So all comers for every new Delta case, they're anticipating between five and nine secondary cases per primary case. So there are some reasons why there may be. There's data to suggest that it binds better to the ACE uh, um, site. The incubation period appears to be fairly short, uh, uh, average around four days, whereas the um, wild type virus was an average of six days of incubation period. Um, there is uh, some preliminary data from China that you've probably read about, and this is that um, uh, quantitative measurement of viral uh, load in the respiratory tract that um, kind of made the rounds on the news, and they found about a thousand fold 
uh, higher viral load in the respiratory tract versus the wild type strain from uh, from the original outbreak. So that doesn't mean it's a thousand times more infectious, but it it appears to to uh, release a, a large amount of viruses in the respiratory tract, much more than we saw with the original outbreak. Um, so because of this, uh, it's produced the majority of cases in the U.S. At this point, it, t- it makes up about 93% of, of new U.S. cases. Uh, and we're seeing about 110,000 new cases per day nationwide. Uh, whereas in mid-June, we were one-tenth of that. So we're on a on the way up of a of a surge. It's also causing causing surges in many countries around the world. And I would encourage you to look at what's going on globally because it's important. Um, for example, if you look at the UK, they have uh, seen COVID surges and recoveries uh, that are consistent with what we're seeing, usually several months ahead of time. Okay, so they had the big. UK alpha outbreak in December and January, we had it in March and April. They are recovering from a Delta surge. We are on the upswing of a Delta surge. Their vaccination rate is similar, a little bit better than ours, but it's similar. Um, So, and then there are countries where they have very low access to vaccines and they're seeing huge, huge outbreaks. Many of them don't have the testing capability to confirm new cases. So there are vast underreporting issues there. So uh, as far as how severe the Delta is compared to the alpha or the original strain, that's not entirely clear. The best data to to, uh, evaluate that came out of Scotland and they saw a hospitalization rate of about two times that of the alpha strain. So it appears to cause hospitalizations more frequently. There's not a lot of good mortality data. You're gonna of course see more deaths because the transmission is significantly higher. Whether or not it's actually more severe is still unclear. and then we should talk about vaccines in the setting of Delta. Uh, we obviously we're we're fortunate that they appear to be well. Um, they're efficacious regardless of the strain. There is data to suggest that they're not as effective in the Delta strain. Um, overall, about ninety percent of new COVID cases are unvaccinated, and about ninety-five percent plus of new hospitalizations are unvaccinated. So um, in uh, the United Kingdom, they published a study in New England Journal in July looking at uh, the efficacy of um, the, this was the Pfizer vaccine um, in protection from the Delta variant. And they found about 88% protection from symptomatic disease. So in Israel, um, which is similar to the UK in regards to their vaccination status. What they do differently, though, is they do a lot of screening. They screen a lot of asymptomatic patients, and they found an, effic- an efficacy of around 64%. Okay, So what they're doing is they're picking up more asymptomatic cases. Um, and so it's, it probably varies depending on location, um, but the, the effectiveness is probably somewhere between 65 and the high 80s. Uh, now, what is dramatic is that with a single dose of an mRNA vaccine, that uh, effectiveness drops dramatically. It's only about 30% effective uh, for symptomatic disease. 
Now for um, hospitalization and death, it's incredibly effective, probably in the, in the, in the mid nineties. So um, it really it, it, when they talk about vaccine effectiveness, they're, they're talking about either um, against symptomatic disease or against hospitalization and death. And actually the important thing is hospitalization and death. And that one, it appears to be very effective. So that, that's good. Um, you'll hear about breakthrough cases um, in, in the news. And of course that, that is concerning, but I, I guess I just wanted to make, I want to make clear that that is inevitable. Okay, so these vaccines, as we mentioned, are very effective. They're not 100%. When you vaccinate 165 million people and the vaccine is whatever, 90 to 95% effective, uh, you're gonna have breakthrough cases. And you, there are actually hospitalizations and deaths in the setting of vaccination, but it has been incredibly rare. Uh, the last uh, data point I saw on that is 7,525 total deaths so far in fully vaccinated out of 165 million, which is a percentage of 0.004%. So it's very rare um, to get critically ill in the setting of vaccination. So, um, but you know, keep in mind, the more population that is vaccinated, the more likelihood statistically that we're going to find breakthrough cases. Okay. So that, that is also, you, you know, we're seeing cumulative population getting vaccinated. So more and more, which is good, but even if it's 1% one, 1 of that population, more of that is, it, is going to come through as a breakthrough case. So um, that is notable. Um, it doesn't necessarily, um, it shouldn't ring an alarm bell. It's, it's inevitable. From what we can tell, they appear to be functioning very well. Um, there was an uh, article published in MMWR uh, in late July looking at an outbreak of cases in, in Massachusetts associated with a summer gathering. And they took a cohort of confirmed Delta cases and um, looked at how many of them were vaccinated, how many of them were unvaccinated. They found actually a significant amount of vaccinated patients getting sick in the setting of this um, outbreak. But when they looked at cycle threshold, which is a quantitative measurement of how much virus is being exuded in the respiratory tract, they actually found similar uh, quantities of virus in the vaccinated and the unvaccinated once they got sick. So that is part of the reason why the CDC changed their masking guidelines in late July to reflect the fact that uh, those who are vaccinated could potentially transmit uh, the, the virus just as easily as, as somebody who is unvaccinated. Now, their likelihood of getting infected is much lower. But once they get infected, this study would suggest that they still have a significant risk of transmission. So I, I think that the CDC took some heat for this change because two months earlier they had told or they had altered their mask guidelines to suggest that if you're vaccinated, you don't need to mask in an indoor setting. And so you all experienced it July or June, July, the summer. It was, you know, freedom. You didn't have to wear a mask inside. And now they're going back. And so I think that led to some discrediting, but actually what that is is just science. So you get new information, you make new recommendations. You, you, you're trying to do the best you can for the population. It doesn't mean that that initial uh, notion was wrong. It was based on the information they had at the time. 
So I think it's hard for people to grasp that, that, um, uh, that our opinion, our recommendations change and it changes based on information. It, do, it doesn't discredit the initial thought. Um, that's how science works. It doesn't normally happen this public and it's not normally this scrutinized and it's not normally this fast. So uh, it's a really historic time for that because everyone's paying attention. This happens all the time. We change what we do for any given disease based on new information. It just is slower and no one, you know, a small population of people care about it. And now everyone cares about it. And so it's very, it's heavily scrutinized, but um, you know, they may get new information in two months and change the recommendations. It doesn't mean that it's, it's wrong. And we, you know, I tell my kids, you, you got to be adaptable, you know, you got to flow. You got to, uh, if, if new recommendations come out, we have to, um, we have to listen and we have to pay attention to the science. Yeah. You know, Dr. Lecky, we were talking about that at clinical command as well. And the recommendation from the CDC for indoor masking is for areas that have substantial or high transmission. And so we're tracking our transmission rates, like we talked about at the beginning, when our transmission rates cross that threshold, we made this change. And I think if, you know, we're all hopeful that this surge like others will rise and fall. And then when our numbers drop back below that threshold, I think we'll, you know, if guidance has changed, we'll go back to the guidance that we had before. But I think that's a, a really key point we've heard throughout that, you know, well, you, you, people don't know what they're talking about because they change their recommendations. But, you know, we, in the midst of this pandemic, the recommendations for the treatment of sev several sexually transmitted diseases were the recommendation was changed because of mm. some resistance data. That was a change based on data. Nobody batted an eye because that's how science usually happens. So exactly. that's a great point that you made. Yeah. Yeah. So if, uh, just one more point about that. If you look at the, pay attention to what's happening in the UK right now, because they peaked and they're coming down. And that's going to be us probably in the next, who knows, three, four, five weeks. We're going to peak and we're going to come down. Um, it, it will happen. It will turn around and we will make reassessments of these recommendations. But, it, you know, at the time, time being, we just have to listen to the experts. Well said. Well, um, you know, you're getting lots of kudos in the comments here. Lots of people appreciating um, your advice today. I don't have additional comments um, or additional questions um, from the audience for either of you. I'll give the audience a chance just to enter another question or two if you get a moment. But uh, go ahead, Chris. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, there was a, uh, I saw an initial question about booster doses. And I think that's probably worth touching on, although it's, in, that's another dynamic aspect of this. So, um, Maybe Nick can chime in on this too. So th there's a lot has come up about um, booster dosing, and it's actually occurring in several countries where they're redosing the mRNA vaccine. Um, I think that's uh, going to come. Um, I would uh, suggest that we wait on additional data and hard recommendations for that. It's interesting that the World Health Organiz Organization put a moratorium on that. They do not want any booster doses given until a significant significantly more of the global population is vaccinated, which makes sense. So it's actually become a fairly controversial topic. Um, but, you know, that, that question is going to come up and it's valid. And I would say more to come on that. For sure. Nick, anything you wanted to add either uh, based on what Dr. Lecky said or related to the booster vaccination question? Yeah, nothing. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, that's exactly what I would say, too, is we just need more data for the, the vaccine booster, who needs it and when. Um, 
And I always say to uh, students and residents I work with that all facts have a half-life. And that's exactly what we're seeing now is just now the facts, the half-life is a lot uh, shorter than normal facts. Well said. Well, thanks very much for listening to Munson Med Talks this week. We hope you found that helpful and, and will help to improve your practice. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes and have a great day.